All right, we're continuing our way through the Gospel of Luke here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Before we jump into that passage, could I just offer a personal word of welcome and thanks? The Listener's Commentary has listeners all around the world people that I'll never meet personally, most likely, until we're together in the new world, right? Like, that's just the way it's going to be. There are listeners in the Far East, in places like Mongolia and Hong Kong and Thailand and even mainland China. There are listeners in Europe and South America and I just want to say welcome. Welcome to studying the Bible together with me. I am so glad you're here and so grateful for you uh, that you are engaging in God's Word as a follower of Jesus in this way, and you're using this resource to do that. So I'm grateful for that. I'm glad you're here. And not only that, the listener's commentary is made possible. The reason this resource is here and people are able to study the Bible together with me and with each other using this resource is because of the generosity of people who say, man, I, I, I see what's going on here and I value, I value this tool and I see the impact it's having on people. And they're sharing their financial resources to make this possible. So thanks a ton to those of you who are doing that. And the reality is, is the listener's commentary is only about a year old and we're only really uh, about maybe 45 or 50% funded here on the listener's commentary. If if half of you stepped up and gave 10 to $20 to help support this, man, we would be closer to fully funded. I could actually get some help in producing some of those resources. And so if you're able to, if you're able to help out in any way and join the team of supporters that make this possible, then I invite you to check out the, the donation page. There's a link down in the notes below where you can support this resource and support this ministry so that it can continue to grow and expand and make an impact all around the world. My heart and my hope is, is that more and more people can find the listener's commentary because I believe there's a hunger for a Bible study and Bible teaching that's clear and down to earth, and that's what the listener's commentary is all about. So I'm glad you're here. I'm thankful to those of you who make this possible. All right, let's jump into Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. And to begin, let's just review the context. In the, the section we are in right now, Luke is giving us a handful of snapshots showing us Jesus' power and authority. Um, is, this is really growing out of the end of the parable of the sower, where Jesus said, look, I didn't come to hide. I didn't come to hide my teaching, my power, my kingdom, my authority. I actually want to be a lamp. I want to be light. But at the same time, I have to recognize that not everyone wants that. And so he's teaching in parables as a way to filter out who really wants it and who doesn't. And that leads into then the showing of Jesus' power and authority over sea and wind in the coming of the sea over the the multitude of demons that possessed the man, the demons that named themselves legion as they had taken over this man. In this particular uh, session, we're going to look at two snapshots that are intertwined together, that really go together as one story. And these two snapshots that are intertwined, they display Jesus' power and authority over both disease and death. Uh, and one other observation as we begin, these two stories involve people at two opposite ends of the social spectrum. 
On one end, you have a synagogue official and his daughter. He has status. He has honor. He has some authority, some clout, some importance going for him in town. But he doesn't appeal to that, and he himself is in a desperate situation, and he falls before Jesus begging for help. So you have that end, and then at the other end of the social spectrum is a woman with a a bleeding issue of some sort, we'll talk about more what that probably is, but a bleeding issue of some sort, which makes her unclean and alienated from the community, and she's at the opposite end. She has little power, little authority, little prospects of ever getting anything changed for her. And so we have two people at two very different ends of the social spectrum, both coming to Jesus in a desperate situation that they have no power to solve. And Jesus saves, that's the word Luke uses, Jesus saves both of them from their dire circumstance. Let's jump into verse 40. It says this, And Jesus, as he was returning, so he's returning from his sea voyage, right? These stories all kind of build on each other and go together. So they were sailing across the Sea of Galilee to the east. Uh, When the storm happened, they arrived in the east over in the Decapolis region. He healed a man with demons. Now they've sailed back to Galilee and they have returned to someplace familiar, most likely Capernaum, though the town is not mentioned. But because of the reaction of the people, it seems familiar. So as Jesus was returning, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And so he's well known in this region, right? And so if it's Capernaum or another town, he's been there before. They're looking for him. They, they, they're watching for him. And maybe even in this situation, because of what immediately happens next, they're watching for him because there's a desperate situation with an important man in town, and they want they know Jesus maybe could help with the situation, and so they're uh, watching and waiting for him to see, can he help the situation? That's where we turn to next, verse 41. And a man named Jairus came, and he was an official of the synagogue. And so he is a, a synagogue leader. It, it's possible that that title Uh, official of the synagogue or synagogue ruler was used just of a person of importance in town, but it also referred to and most likely focused on a person who had standing in town because of his importance in the synagogue. He was the one who uh, planned services, uh, selected and organized the readings, chose the reader for the week. He was kind of the like the official moderator and runner of the synagogue and the synagogue service for the Sabbath day. And so he has importance, he has status, he has some clout. He comes to Jesus, and it says he fell at Jesus's feet. And so he humbles himself before Jesus, even though he has importance and honor. He doesn't appeal to that. In fact, he even is willing to lower himself and, in some senses, uh, choose to dishonor himself by lowering himself and bowing at Jesus' feet. Uh, And he began urging him to come to his house. And so his situation and Jesus' power puts this man in in a position where he's willing to acknowledge Jesus has authority and power and honor greater than his. And so he's urging Jesus to come to his house, and here's why. Verse 42, for he had an only daughter. Notice that. This is his only daughter, and she's about 12 years old, and she was dying. She's on her deathbed. Like, she's been sick presumably for a while, and it's taken a turn for the worse, and it doesn't look like she's going to make it. That's the situation. And notice her age. She's about 12 years old. That puts her 
in their context, according to rabbinic writings, that puts her right on the cusp of marriage. So she's moved from being a child, um, and she's moved through the stage of being a minor, 11 years old to 12 years old. She was considered a minor, but 12, now she's considered uh, a virgin. That is, she's, uh, she's getting to the age of where she's marriageable. She's about ready to get married, and so she's a young woman. She would be uh, ready for this uh, synagogue ruler to uh, arrange her marriage and uh, have her get married, but she is now sick to the point of death, and Jesus goes with this man. He went, and as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. So this is important. That little detail is important for the next story that gets intertwined with this. And so the crowds in town that were waiting for him presumably to see if he'll help the synagogue ruler, now are gathered all around him. And it's a, it's a big crowd. It's small space. It's tight. They're all kind of crushing in on him. There's just a, a lot of jostling and bumping, and it's a crowded scene as they're all moving towards uh, the synagogue ruler's house across town somewhere. And so he's going across town in that situation, and here's what happens. Verse 43, and a woman who had suffered a flow of blood, or this translation throws in a chronic to help us understand the situation, a chronic flow of blood for 12 years. Notice the connection. You have a 12-year-old girl and you have a 12-year-old flow of blood. All right. And so uh, this woman has been bleeding for the entire length of time. The young, young gal who's dying has been alive. She's got this chronic flow of blood and could not be healed by anyone. Um, that This is important. Here's this woman with this chronic flow of blood. In fact, the language used seems to echo Leviticus chapter 15, uh, which spoke of uh, the menstrual cycle of a woman and how that needed to be uh, handled in kind of a ritual and religious sort of way. That the uh, uh, during the time of her weekly, you know, her monthly menstrual cycle, a woman was considered ritually unclean. Uh, this woman has had this issue for 12 years. So for 12 years, she has been unclean. Someone who would touch her would have been considered unclean till evening. Anything she sat on was considered unclean. This woman is, because of her medical issues, is pushed to the margins of society, is going to be somewhat alienated and have very limited contact with people. She's not allowed into the synagogue. Um, and so she's really in a desperate, not only medical situation, but uh, religious situation, uh, social situation. This woman is ostracized from her community because of her medical situation. So she comes, and she could not be healed by anyone. People had tried to heal before. No one had a, a cure for her problem. And so she came up immediately, verse 44, behind Jesus, and she touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. The fringe of the cloak refers to the tassels that were hanging down around uh, the a Jewish man's outer cloak, right? And that's, this was spoken of in Numbers chapter 15 and Deuteronomy 22 as a, a way to remind the Jewish people of their covenant with God and their need for faithful loyalty and obedience to him. And so uh, Jews were instructed to, on the four corners of their cloak to... Uh, to basically create tassels 
that would hang down. That's what she, it seems like she comes and touches based on the language here. So she comes to Jesus and she touches one of those and she does it secretly and hiding in the crush of the cloud, crowd, hoping that no one notices her and hoping that no attention is drawn to her. Um, and notice that she touched him. In fact, her touching of him is going to be mentioned four times in this little episode. She touched him. What's the assumption of that? Well, according to uh, Leviticus, right, like this woman is unclean and anyone who touches her or anything she touches is unclean. So this touch should have made Jesus unclean, but the exact opposite happens. Let's, she is uh, healed of her bleeding instantly. So his cleanness and his healing power is transferred to her. And instead of him being made unclean, ritually, she's actually healed. Um, and Jesus knows this happens. Even though the crowd is crushing on him, Jesus knows that there's been some sort of special sort of touch, a touch of you know, seeking help, a touch that was motivated by at least some measure of faith. He knows this in some way, and he wants to know who it is that touched him. And so verse 45, Jesus said, who touched me? And, G and and while they were all denying, not me, not me, not me, Peter's like, uh, Master, the people are crowding against you and bumping into you and pressing into you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, meaning someone touched me in, in an intentional sort of way, for I was aware that power had left me. So it was an intentional touch. And Jesus is aware that this was an intentional touch because he knows in some sense that healing power has gone out of him. However that works and however that feels like, who knows? But Jesus is aware of that. And Jesus sees the need to acknowledge whoever it was that touched him and came to him. He wants to acknowledge that person and he wants that person to acknowledge him. How can she be fully restored without his acknowledging of her and without her acknowledging him? There needs to be a connection because Jesus isn't just a magician who wants to heal people. Ultimately, he wants to restore people to himself and through him to God and then to the people of God as well. And that can't happen without them acknowledging each other. So he wants to know who touched me. Well, verse 47 says this. Now, when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, when she realized, okay, I can't keep hiding. I'm not going to get away with this. He really is looking around. When she realized this, she came trembling and she fell down before him. Now, we don't know what motivated the trembling. I suspect it was a little bit of several things, just the emotion of the moment, all eyes on her. She's you know, probably in some circles well-known, at least for, you know, being that unclean woman who's had an issue of blood. She had risked making him unclean, and here he's on his way to help people. Plus, she had pressed her way through the crowd, which would have risked making them unclean. So there's all the social stigma uh, and 12 years of social stigma, 12 years of shame, that may have motivated her trembling. Not only that, she's now aware that she's been healed, so she's aware that indeed Jesus has some sort of power. That may have motivated the trembling. So she comes trembling, and like Jairus, she falls down before Jesus. And she admitted in the presence of all the people the reason that she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And here's Jesus' response in verse 48. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
This is the only place in the gospel that Jesus addresses somebody with this particular term of endearment, daughter. He calls her daughter. This is a term of affection, a term of endearment. This is a term of you too are a a daughter of Abraham. You too are a, a daughter of the people of God. You belong to this community. You belong to these people. You are a daughter. And in that way, he restores her to full relational connection to the community. And he says, your faith has made you well, literally has saved you. Go in peace, has saved you from this disorder, has saved you from this disease, has saved you from your uh, alienation and brought you back to the community. Your faith and willing to take this risk and touch Jesus has saved you. Go in peace. Well, that you get that little episode, that's wrapped up. And while that's going on, here's what happens. Verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone rushes up to from the synagogue official's house and says, your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. And so while all this is going on, the delay of dealing with this woman and the synagogue official like, look, my daughter's dying. Will you come? Someone comes. Worst news ever. It's too late. Your daughter has died. And they conclude that all hope is lost. No sense in bothering him now. She's dead. What could he do? What could anyone do? It's too late. It's too late. All hope is lost. But verse 50, when Jesus heard this, he responded to him, to the synagogue official. Do not be afraid any longer. Do not be afraid. Literally, any longer is supplied, just to kind of give us the sense. But don't be afraid. Only believe. Only have faith. Only put your confidence in me. And she will be made well. Literally, she will be saved. She'll be saved out of death. So I'm needing you, Jairus, to trust me, to put your confidence in me. I can actually solve this problem too. And she will be saved. And so they continued on. And when Jesus came to the house, he didn't allow anyone to enter into the house with him except kind of his inner circle of three key core disciples, Peter, John, and James. And so they go in with him, along with the girl's father, Jairus, and her mother. So it's Jesus, Peter, John, James, mom, and dad. That's who goes into the house. And while they were all weeping, so you got all the mourners outside of the house, inside the house, right? You got the, the this is just classic uh, Middle Eastern wailing and mourning. Some are even made professional mourners, right? You got mourning going on. She is dead. They're all mourning for her. All hope is lost. She's dead. Uh, Jesus said, stop weeping for she has not died, but she is asleep. And it's probably, probably that Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows he's going to wake her up, i.e. raise her from the dead. And so he's using this imagery uh, of asleep to say, death is something that you get up from in me, in my power. Uh, and in fact, in later New Testament writings, uh, death is routinely called sleep. It's a The metaphor sleep is a way to describe death because death is something now in Jesus that you rise from, you get up from. And so seems like perhaps that's what's going on here. Jesus knows she's dead, but he also knows he's going to wake her up. That is rise her from the dead. Well, the crowd knows she's dead too. And so verse 53, they, they were laughing at him. They were laughing at him like, come on, she's, she's not asleep. She's dead. Uh, they all knew that she had died. Here's what happened. Verse 54, Jesus took her by the hand. Again, notice that he, he touches her. He reaches out, grabs the dead girl's hand. 
what does that mean? She's dead. What's supposed to be the result of touching a corpse according to Old Testament law? Unclean. But instead, once again, life passes from uh, Jesus to her, and her uncleanness does not make him unclean. His authority and power and greatness actually restores her to life, and she's no longer dead. She's back alive. So he takes her by the hand, and he spoke forcefully, sternly, saying, Child, arise. And he gives an order to the girl, an order to death. Child, arise. And what happens? Well, her spirit returned to her. She got up immediately, and he ordered that something be given to her to eat. I've always found that line humorous, like apparently being dead and then coming back to life makes you hungry. I don't know. But immediately, he she's back to life, and it's like, feed this girl. She needs some food. And her, her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Um, Jesus is trying to keep things on the down low because he's got a lot of ministry left that has to happen. There's all sorts of preconceived ideas about who the Messiah is supposed to be and what the Messiah is supposed to do. He doesn't fit those preconceived ideas, and he doesn't want things to get out of hand before he can finish training his disciples and getting things ready for the actual culmination to come in the days ahead. Uh, and so because of that, he instructs the parents to keep it on the download. Don't tell anyone what happened. Now, as we wrap up this little uh, two-scene uh, story here, uh, just Jesus' compassion. That's one of the things that strikes me here in this story. You have an older woman who's been in a desperate situation who really is at uh, the low end of the social scale. You have a young woman, a 12-year-old girl, and a father, and it's his only daughter. And Jesus' compassion moves him to help both these people. He's willing to help. Uh, he addresses the older woman with this term of endearment, daughter. Like, there's a sense of compassion and mercy and kindness. Um, and Jesus is the one who saves them. He re restores them to full health and full life. Uh, and and he encourages them to trust him and have faith in them in doing so. And so Jesus is a person of compassion who wants to help. And that help is made possible by our trust, our confidence in him. And, and that's because, secondly, Jesus' power. Not only does he have compassion, but he's, Jesus is a person of power and authority, even over death, even over a disease that no one else could ever heal this woman of that had gone on for 12 years. Jesus has power and authority over that. In fact, this whole section um, that culminates in these two stories is all about that, Jesus' authority and Jesus' power. And it really sets up where what follows, where Jesus is going to give this same power and the same authority to his apostles as he continues prepping them and preparing them and training them for ministry.